this is what I've, I've talked about as we've done this series now for the last several weeks, is the idea that this is not an exhaustive list. This is not everything that we believe, but these are the big things that we believe that bring us together. This is where we find, this is the things that we find unity in. As a non-denominational church, sometimes people come and the number one question I get from guests or people that call on the phone is they want to know, what do you guys believe? Because it's easy if you go to a Methodist church, they believe certain things. If you go to a Baptist church or an Assembly of God church, they believe certain things, but often at a non-denominational church, people say to themselves, okay, what does this church believe? We don't know. And so that's what I've tried to spell out or at least flesh out in this series is the idea of who we are and what we believe. So we've talked about the idea that we believe in discipleship. We believe in the Bible. Uh, my dad spoke last week about the idea of generosity. We believe in a life of generosity, all those things. This morning I want to talk about salvation. We believe in salvation, the idea of salvation. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter three and verse 16. The next three weeks are gonna tie together. This week, salvation. Next week, the spirit-filled life. The final week is the sacraments of the church, communion and baptism. My hope is for some people, it will be a progression that they've never experienced in their life. A progression this morning of salvation, next week of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then being water baptized on the following week. That's, that's my prayer that for some people here, this will be the progression. But this is how I want to talk about it. That's the progression we follow. Salvation, spirit-filled life, water baptism. But this morning, salvation. John 3 and verse 16 probably will be slightly familiar to everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Look again at the beginning of 16. For God so loved the world. Let's pray. God, I ask in the next few moments, you will speak to every person and every heart here so clearly. God, help us to lay aside everything that might interfere with what you want to do myself included. I put aside anything that, that I might want to do. God, right now, I give you the remainder of this service. We give you our, our minds and our, and our hearts. We open ourselves to you. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us any way you want. We give this to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my opinion, one of the worst, most despicable little offshoots of Christianity is a pretty awful family in the Midwest known as Westboro Baptist Church. For those of you that don't know about Westboro Baptist Church, they do some wonderful things like these signs. What a wonderful, wonderful family. What a wonderful Wonderful representation of For God So Loved the World. This next one's my favorite. That's nice, isn't it? God hates you, and you're going to hell. You can take those down. That is the Westboro Baptist Church. Let me reassure you that they've been completely disavowed by any Baptist organization. 
as have they been disavowed by any, any Bible-believing Christian. But I watched a documentary on them that was entitled The Most Hated Family in America. The Westboro Baptist Church consists of a more or less a single family, a man named Fred Phelps who started it, who has passed away now. He had 13 children. Those 13 children have 54 grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that family basically travels around America and protests at public events. In particular, they protest at the funerals of soldiers, which is just a hideous way, a hideous way to live your life. But this is what they do. They go and protest at funerals and things like that. I actually had an encounter with the Westboro Baptist Church. When my father was the president of Oral Roberts University, Oral Roberts passed away. And his funeral was at the university. Dad remembers this. Those people came and picketed at that funeral. I went to the funeral and was in a car with a couple other guys from the church that I worked at. We came up to an intersection and catty corner from us were those people with those horrible, awful signs. And for a split second of insanity, I debated rolling the window down and telling them that I thought that they were number one. And then, <laughs> my better judgment uh, uh, came through, and I thought maybe uh, a picture on the front page of the Tulsa World of the president of ORU's son giving the Westboro Baptist Church the finger might not be the best thing that ever happened to him or to me. So, rarely has my better judgment happened, but in that moment it did. And I, I was able to contain myself. Uh, thank you. I was able to contain myself. But, in this documentary that I watched, this man was, was asking some of these family members that he said to them, he said, do you think that this picketing actually is going to help anyone find salvation? And the family members laughed at that concept. And during the interview, they laughed. And, and the man asked one of the grandkids, why are you laughing? And she told the interviewer of this documentary, she said, I'm laughing because it gives me pleasure to know that God will carry out his wrath on you. There was a theologian interviewed in this documentary, and he said that the difference between their theology is they practice a theology of damnation instead of salvation. It's a theology of damnation instead of salvation. Now, Bring it back to us. For God so loved the world. God is love. And all of us that are in him should love one another. You know the passages from 1 John. From Romans it says, it says um, while we, for God so loved us that while we were yet sinners. So we talk about, sing about, pray about, encourage each other. God is love. God loves. God is love. Love, 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 love except when it comes to one particular type of message. Often, not always, but often, one particular type of message seems to skew slightly away from the God is love. Wonder what it is? Salvation messages. It's the weirdest thing ever. Regular, normal pastors and Christian leaders preach God is love, God is love, God is love, and then they preach a message on salvation, and they skew towards Westboro Baptist Church. And it's bizarre to me. God is love. 
But what happens is when we preach on salvation, for some reason we preach on the, the horribleness of hell, and that's true. I'm not debating that. Listen to me. There is a hell. If you don't believe in Jesus and have a relationship with him, that is where we're sent. But what happens is you yell and scream and talk about the torture and the fire and the damnation and the devils and the devil and his minions and how horrible it is, and you yell and scream for two hours. And then you give an altar call, and I promise you most of the people are going to raise their hand for two reasons. One, because they want you to stop talking. Two, because they want to buy eternal life insurance. There's more to salvation than simply spiritual life insurance. Nobody wants to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want any of you to go to hell. And regardless of what you may think, I don't want Fred Phelps to go to hell. I don't want him to go to hell. You want to know why? Because I worship a God that doesn't want Fred to go to hell either. And that's what we've got to get a hold of. This is what we have to get a hold of. So in this moment, what I want to talk about with salvation, we will talk about the end and the ultimate salvation. But that really and truly is a wonderful byproduct of salvation that happens in the here and now. What happens is so many of us want salvation so we don't go to hell. But as I said earlier, we live in various levels of defeat for our entire life. And we limp into heaven. Thank God I'm here. And God's like, man, that like wasn't what I wanted for your life. Now, if you will, turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I mentioned this and we'll read it again. Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be saved. But why? Because God so loved us. So the first thing is this we are saved. We are saved. Now listen to me. There has to be a moment where that becomes real to you in your life. It is not simply enough to hang around the church. It is not simply enough to grow up in the church. It is not simply enough to to do churchy type stuff. It is not simply enough to be a good person. It's not simply enough. There has to be a moment of salvation where we become saved, where we believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And we have that moment, that encounter with God. There must, that must happen at some point. So I have a question. At that moment, you attend a service. The pastor says, if you want to be saved, if you want to enter into a relationship with Jesus, if you want to give your your life and your future to him, come up and say a prayer and, and have that experience. That person, you do that. The person does that. They come to the front. That happens. Are they saved? Yes, they are. It's not a trick question. Stay with me. Are they saved? Yes, they're saved. Are they a fully mature, discipled, built upon their faith believer? No, no. But are they saved? Yes, you have to have the moment of surrender. You have to have the moment of surrender. Now, I'll give you an example. When I was about nine or 10, I became fascinated with learning how to play chess. My dad is a pretty good chess player. And one of the mission trips to Mexico, he had bought a chess board 
made out of some kind of stone. And there were white and green pieces. They were large. And I was fascinated by the pieces on this board. And I said, Dad, I want you to show me how to play chess. And he taught me how to play chess very quickly. I can teach you how to play chess very quickly. Pawns, king and queen, queen on her color, rook, bishop, knight. Rooks move this way, bishops move that way. You can do these things. Queen moves any direction as far as she wants. King can move any direction, one space. I can teach you how to play chess in about 10 minutes. I will beat you in chess for the next 10 years. (laughs) Why? Because my old man beat me in chess for the next 20 years. He taught me how to play when I was about 9 or 10. And then he proceeded to beat me like a drum in chess for the next 20 years of my life. So I'm going to tell you a story. We went to Africa together when I was in my late 20s. I took a little portable chess board with, with us. We traveled from Atlanta to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam to Africa. No sleep, all that. Get there, you can't sleep the first night. The next day, we're sitting around, and I said, Dad, let's play some chess, because I figured I had him. He was older than I was. He hadn't slept in the last two days. We are in the middle of Africa, and what happened? I beat him like a drum. I beat him in that chess, and we've never played chess again. So as far as I know, as far as I know, I'm a much better chess player than he is because the last time we played, I won. That's all I know. My record is about 1 and 175 or 1 and 375. Who knows how many times my dad beat me in chess over the years. But my point is, you have to learn how to play chess at some point. You cannot just randomly move the pieces around the board. It is not enough to come to church. It is not enough to occasionally read your Bible when you feel really guilty. It is not enough in a moment of crisis to call out to God and pray. It is not enough for your spouse to love Jesus. It is not enough for you to be an usher. It's not enough for you to volunteer upstairs with the kids' ministry. At some point, there must be a moment where you surrender your life to God. We must be saved. We are saved. That moment comes. But that's not the, that's not the, the end. That's the beginning. What frustrates me about a lot of teaching on salvation is people go, Hey, that's it, man. You got saved. Now you just got to wait to die. You're like, well, what do I do between now and dying? And they're like, I don't know. You're saved. That's the only thing that matters. That It does matter. But there's more to it than that. Just like learning how to play chess. You can learn to move the pieces, but you have to then be able to think ahead and manipulate the board. Which brings us to the next thing, which is in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Turn over a couple of chapters in the New Testament to Galatians 2 And 20, Paul is writing the book of Galatians. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Salvation. That is as clear as it can be. I have been crucified with Christ. We are saved. We, We enter the moment of salvation. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the first thing is we are saved. The next thing is we are being saved. We are being saved. Paul says it. I have been crucified with Christ Then look, it is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. We continue to live not in our own power, not in our own strength, not in our own flesh. We continue to live through Christ who lives in us. We are saved. There has to be a moment of surrender. There ha- the relationship with, with Jesus has to begin. But then he lives in us and helps us continually every day to continue being saved. I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a moment of salvation, but there is also all the moments after that where God continues to put life and light into your life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. About three months ago, a pathetic little doggie showed up here at the church on a Saturday morning. We were having a work day, and this dog showed up at the church and wouldn't leave. And... Because Harold Bridwell is Harold Bridwell, he fed the dog. (laughs) So, we came back on Sunday morning, and guess what? Dog was still here, because he knew Harold was coming back at some point. So we took the dog around, tied it up in the back of the church, because I didn't want it running inside. It was sitting, Krista, it was sitting right in front of those doors. So we tied it up in the back of the church, I thought, It had a little collar on it, but no tag, just a little collar. I thought, well, somebody's going to come find the dog, or the dog's going to go back home where it came from. It ran away. It was hungry. It'll go back home. So we untied the dog. Chris Russo, because he is Chris Russo, fed the dog again on Sunday. So the dog got plenty of outreach hot dogs, some water. So I show up at work on Monday morning, and guess what? dog's still here. So we're discussing, Janet and I are discussing what we're going to do with this dog. I said, well, we'll figure it out. I said, if the dog's still here on Tuesday, we'll take it to the pound or we'll call some, we'll do something with it. So I come back here on Tuesday, dog is still here. So I thought, well, you know, this dog wants to be here at church more than anybody in my church. So... (laughs) I, uh, I, immediately, I immediately had a connection to the dog because I felt like me and the dog were the only one that were here on a real regular basis. So I called Courtney and I said, you know what, I've been thinking about this and I think that we ought to take the dog. And Courtney was like, who is this? So I'm not really an animal person. Everybody that knows me knows that about me. But this dog was so pathetic and so sweet that I don't know, something about it. So I came back in and told Janet and Lisa, uh, the ladies that work here, that I was going to take the dog home. Lisa worked with me in Tacoa when I was pastoring up there, and she works here now at Restoration. She said, you're going to take the dog? I said, yes. She said, well, I feel like this is that part in How the Grinch Saved Christmas where the Grinch's heart grew three sizes. (laughs) I was like, thank you very much. (laughs) So we give the dog a flea bath because it is covered in fleas. And when I say covered in fleas, I mean covered in fleas. So we give it a flea bath to get some of the fleas off, but it's still covered in fleas. We wrap it in a blanket, put it in the back of Courtney's car, take it up to the vet. The vet gives it a pill that kills the rest of the fleas within 10 minutes. And while we're sitting in the vet's office, you can just see the fleas falling off of this dog. 
the vet does a test, blood test on the dog. You ready for this? The dog had lost 70% of all of its blood because of those fleas. The entire gums and the little doggy's tongue were all white. It was completely anemic. And the doctor said, I think the dog will make it. But he said, I'm not sure. So you have two options. You can just take it home and feed it and take care of it, and hopefully it will recover now that all the fleas are gone. He said, or you can pay about $700 to get a blood, transfer, a blood transfusion from a dog blood bank down in Atlanta. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll just take the dog home. I was like, <laughs> paying $700 for a transfusion. <laughs> so we took the dog home, and we fed it. And you know what? That dog is living in my backyard this very day. Because, yeah, <laughs> here's the best part. I called my sister, Rosemary, who lives in California, and told her that we'd gotten a dog. And she said, this is just like that part in The Grinch Saves Christmas where the Grinch's heart grew three sizes. That's a true story. They both said it. They both said it. Now, here's, you say, okay, that was a nice story and makes me look like a good guy to all the guests because I love animals, right? They said, well, what does that have to do with getting saved? Here's the point. I could have what? We rescued the dog. We washed it. We took it to the vet. All the fleas fell off. We could have fed it for a couple of weeks, and then we could have just taken it somewhere and dropped it off. Good luck. Hope it works out for you, dog. Good luck with everything. See you later. No. That dog lives in my backyard, safe from predators, safe from other things. We feed it. We play with it. We give her treats. We give her water. We've named her. She does tricks. She is a part of our family. When it gets cold, oh, when it gets cold, <laughs> we let the dog come inside the house for crying out loud. This is my life now. This is my life. Why? Did I save the dog? Yes. Am I continuing every day to save that dog? Yes, because if I don't feed it, nobody will. Now listen to me. Are you saved? Do you have to have a moment of salvation? Yes, but allow God to continually save you and sanctify you and renew you and fill you over and over and over again. You don't just have a moment of salvation where he gets rid of all the fleas and takes you to the vet and then he kicks you out on the street and says, good luck until you die and then you get to go to heaven, God says, I want to be involved in your life. I have been crucified with Christ, yet it is not I that live, but Christ in me. That is the life that we aspire to live. Christ in us every day, helping us make it through, helping us get to where we want to be, helping us become the person God is calling us to be. We are saved. We are being saved. We are saved. We are being saved doesn't just one time at an altar when you're nine years old and then you do whatever you want until you die 70 years later. We are saved. That is vital. It is the first step. You must encounter that. But we are being saved. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me every day. Every day he wants to help you walk it out and live it out. We are saved. We are being saved. Now finally, look if you will at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. The writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about Jesus as the ultimate high priest. He's not, an, he's not a human high priest. He's the, he's the ultimate high priest. 
Hebrews 9 and 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Do you understand what he's saying? He says, Jesus doesn't go and make sacrifices for us in the earthly temple, in the earthly tabernacle. He is making sacrifices for us in heaven before God the Father. So he says, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, but he's in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for you. Now to appear in the presence of God for you. Not that Jesus should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Jesus then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once But after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for what? Salvation. He will appear a second time for salvation. Look again at verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. We will be saved. We will be saved. That's that's the wonderful end game. But that's not why we are saved to start with. That's a wonderful, awesome, magnificent, forgiving, final, ultimate solution, salvation that happens. But the reason that we are saved, yes, Is it so in that moment, in that appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment that we will be saved? Is that why we get saved? Yes. But all this stuff between here and then, we are being saved. We are being saved, but then it gets better every time. We will be saved again. We are saved in this moment, in this earthly body. We come somewhere, a church, praying with someone that loves you, praying with a family member, a friend, a coworker, whatever it is, and we have a wonderful moment of salvation. But this is how great Jesus is. Every single thing gets better. The moment of salvation, you go, it can't get any better than this. But then we crucified to Christ. That's great. It can't get any better than this. But then Christ lives in us. And every day he builds us up and strengthens us and encourages us and reminds us that we are victorious and we are not defeated and that we have been made to reign and rule. And he reminds us of that every single day. And we go, it can't get any better than this. And then we pass through the curtain to the other side. And God says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we say, it can't get any better than this. And we're right. Finally, in that moment, we're right. It doesn't get any better than this. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. That is the wonderful thing about salvation. The end of your life, you pass away, you appear before the judgment bar of God. And the movie of your life plays on screens as big as all of eternity. All the sin you've committed. All the addiction. All the lust. All the anger, all the rage. All the, all the awful stuff you said about people when you were alone. All that sin 
on these screens for all of eternity to see. And you realize, I thought I was saved, but I'm getting more and more and more worried as your life in technicolor plays out on a screen. You say to yourself, I have no hope. There's no way that that relationship that I started with Jesus when I was 12 or 22 or 72, there's no way that that's going to make up for all of this stuff. Look at all the stuff I've done. Look at all the people I've hurt. Look at all the sin I've committed. Look at all the commandments I've broken. There's no way that that moment will possibly work here. And you get more worried and more anxious and more depressed. And the movie ends. And you hear God the Father's voice rumble out of heaven. What do you have to say for yourself? And in that moment, Jesus appears next to you. And he puts his arm around you. And he says, plead the blood. And you say, what blood? And he says, my blood. And he steps between you and God the Father. And he says, God, when you look at him, you see me. His name is in my book. My blood was shed for her. And the voice rumbles. Enter in. Well done, good and faithful servant. We are saved. We are being saved. And in that glorious moment, we will be saved. It's not about damnation. God doesn't hate you. God isn't against you. It is about salvation. For God so loved the world. You don't want to go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. But that's not a good enough reason to get saved. Why we want to get saved is for the relationship, for the life of salvation, and for the ultimate salvation, for the eternal where Jesus wraps his arms around us and says, I love you. You're forgiven. Enter in. Let me close with this. Everyone in this room knows the song Amazing Grace. There are two interesting things about the song Amazing Grace. The first is this. Amazing Grace can be sung to the theme song of Gilligan's Island. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. I learned that in youth camp when I was 13 years old. That was money well spent, Mom and Dad. Here's the much more, much, much more rewarding thing to know about Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace was written by a man named John Newton. When John Newton wrote it, he was a pastor in the Church of England, pastor to church in London. But John Newton was not always a pastor in the Church of England. John Newton was a slaver. He operated in the buying and selling of slaves from Africa and transporting them from West Africa to London. He writes, I was a I was a murderer by choice. John Newton was a slaver. He operated in the buying and selling of other human beings. 
He did that for a number of years. Back and forth on his slave ship, transporting human beings to be bought and sold as cattle. Finally, on a trip, John Newton became desperately ill, and his crew left him in Africa. John Newton was then taken into captivity by the same people that he bought and sold. And as he was sick and he thought dying, he was also made, put into slavery. And Newton lived like that for some amount of time. He then was rescued by an Englishman who came to West Africa. Newton, on the voyage home, was finally healed on that ship on the voyage home. But before he was healed, he cried out to God and he said, God, please heal me. Please heal me. Please restore me. I want a relationship with you. And Newton said on that ship in that moment, he had a greater encounter, a more wonderful encounter with God than anything he'd ever experienced. We are saved. Newton then gave up his slave trading. And he decided to go into the ministry. Needless to say, he was not welcomed with open arms to just every church he showed up at. But finally, he was ordained in the Church of England and given a church. And he began to work with uh, William Wilberforce to end slavery in the British Empire. And he worked with him tirelessly to end slavery. And he pastored, and he helped, and he loved, and he preached mercy and grace. We are being saved. Towards the end of his life, John Newton wrote a song that best expressed his past, his present, and his future. That song was Amazing Grace. Now, you may have known that whole story. It's well known. It's, Amazing Grace is probably the most popular hymn ever written. Here's probably what you don't know. Amazing Grace was written on the pentatonic scale. The pentatonic scale is the black keys, the five black keys. Most European music is not written on the pentatonic scale. Do you know where the pentatonic scale is most often utilized in music? Africa. The Africans write most music on the pentatonic scale. And when Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote it on the pentatonic scale. I think the reason he did that was to remind himself that the grace really is amazing. This is Amazing Grace on the pentatonic scale. All the black keys. We are saved. We are being saved. 
we will be saved. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace on the pentatonic scale to remind all of us that no matter what you've done, no matter the horrors that you have inflicted on humanity, God still loves you. God still loves you. And he still offers you his amazing grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've, where you've been, no matter the people that you've hurt, no matter the lives that you've destroyed, no matter the chains that hold you bondage, no matter the addiction that you can't seem to get over, his grace is amazing. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. This can be your moment. We are saved. We are being saved. And glory to God at the end of all things, we will be saved. 